All right, praise the Lord. Uh, open up your Bibles. I don't know what happened to... Here it is. There you go. The iPad was funky today. <laughs> okay, open up your Bibles to Mark 9, 26 through 29. And if you're joining us here in person, you'll see the passage right behind me. If you're joining us online, you'll see it on your screen at home. But Mark 9, 26 through 29. And then we're going to look at Luke 11, 1 through 2 as well. So Mark 9 and then Luke 11. This is God's word. And then after crying out and convulsing him terribly, speaking of this demon, this demon came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And then Luke 11, 1 through 2. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory, and we give you all the worship and the praise. And Lord Jesus, we just want to honor you today. We want to honor you with our lips. We want to honor you with our hearts. And at this time, we want to honor you with our minds. We want to engage with what you have to say to us from your word. And that, Father God, through the avenue of our minds, our hearts would be touched and convicted, and that our bodies would be moved to begin to live and act in ways that you want us to. And so, Lord God, we want to follow you. That's what we're talking about, following you as your disciples. So, Lord God, we thank you so much, Father. Be with us, speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, well, praise the Lord. Well, last week we took a break from our series on discipleship in the Gospel of Mark. And the reason is because we had a wonderful elders commissioning service, so we're still uh, just elated. We're very thankful for that. But we commissioned our first elders in our church, so praise God for that. But today we're going to jump right back into the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to begin looking at some of the more practical aspects of being a disciple, namely the spiritual disciplines of a disciple, the spiritual disciplines. Now, recently a book came out on the spiritual disciplines called The Habits of Grace, and I like that. I like that emphasis on grace, because these spiritual disciplines that we're going to be looking at, and we're only going to look at a few, but they are not a way to earn God's favor through them. Amen? You do not earn God's favor through these disciplines. They are not an attempt to change yourself through them. They are not a way to manipulate God so that he would bless you. But these habits of grace, these spiritual disciplines, are simply a way to regularly and habitually place yourself in the path of God's grace. Like jumping out into the middle of the street when a bus is coming but it's a bus of God's grace. You want to be hit by that. I like to say it like this, but spiritual disciplines place us under the waterfall of God's grace. Have you ever seen a waterfall if you're ever at a national park? But sometimes I just want to like run and dive under the waterfall. So refreshing. But that's what spiritual disciplines are for. It is to put you in the path of God's grace or put you under the waterfall of God's grace. And here's the reason why we should do that. Ultimately, it is God's grace that changes us, 
not our efforts. It is God's grace that sanctifies us and makes us more like Jesus. It's God's grace that turns worldly and weak people into true disciples of Christ. So this is why we want to do the spiritual disciplines. It puts you under the grace of God that will begin to do all these things. So spiritual growth and practicing these disciplines is 100% God. It is God's grace. And yet, the Bible also says it is 100% us. It's both. Paul made this clear, 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Do you see both? I am what I am by the grace of God, but I worked harder than any of you, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul can't make up his mind, it seems like. It's all God's grace, but I worked harder than anyone, but it's God's grace. And so he's going back and forth because it's both. So our spiritual growth as disciples is 100% God's effort, and it is 100% your effort and my effort. But how does that even make any sense? How can it be both? Well, I like using this analogy. If you've been around me long enough, you're going to hear this analogy. But imagine becoming a mature disciple is like winning a two-on-two basketball tournament. And LeBron James is your teammate. And I apologize to all of you who don't like LeBron. I know a lot of people don't like him. Just filling your favorite superstar. But you're in this two-on-two tournament. LeBron is your teammate. So the tournament begins. LeBron is giving 100% of his effort. You're giving 100% of your effort. You're playing game after game together. And then fast forward to the end, you guys won. Right? Surprise, surprise. You guys won the entire tournament. And then later on, a reporter comes to you and asks, how did you guys do it? Right? How did you win the whole thing? And you're going to say, well, you know, <laughs> right? Is that what you're going to do? No, most likely not. And the reason is you know and everyone knows it was LeBron, right? It wasn't you, it was LeBron. But did you give 100% of your effort? Absolutely. Of course you did. You better believe it. And so it is the same with our growth as disciples of Jesus Christ. It's the same. But you are in this together with God, and the victory comes from him, amen? The good work he began, he will complete. But do you also need to give 100% of your effort? You better believe it. And if you don't, you will be benched. So we need to get rid of ourselves of this magical kind of thinking. And this is another thing you've heard from me if you've been around me long enough. But a lot of Christians have this kind of magical thinking when it comes to spiritual growth. And what I mean by that is a lot of Christians, they believe this, but as long as I'm around a lot of Christian activity and Christian things and church, and I'm just kind of around a lot of other Christians, then somehow, I don't, I don't know how, but somehow, slowly but surely, I'm just going to get changed. I'll become like Jesus. And that's what they think, and it's magical. And the reason why it's magical is because we would never believe that same thing about anyone else that we would like to become. Anybody else who's noteworthy, somebody we look up to. So for example, a young Tiger Woods, and I have to say young because, you know, things are different now, but a young Tiger Woods. But nobody would believe that just because you're watching him play golf every day, just because you're hanging around the golf course, you're kind of just around golf, that you're going to become like a young Tiger Woods, right? Who's going to believe that? 
And if you did believe that, and you actually started doing all those things, the only thing you're going to achieve is you'll probably start dressing like him, acting like him, maybe picking up some of his antics, God forbid, even some of his bad habits. And why is that? Why is that the only thing you're going to achieve? Well, we know why. It's because in order to become like a young Tiger Woods, you would have to follow him in what? His overall way of life. Right? You have to follow him in his hours and hours of rigorous training. You have to lift weights. You have to hit thousands of balls off the tee. You need to eat the way he does, sleep the way he does. I mean, you name it, right? You need to adopt his overall way of life if you're going to want to become like a young Tiger Woods. And even then, there's no guarantee. You might never reach his level. So it's the same. I know the analogy is not perfect, but it's close enough. But it is the same with a disciple of Jesus Christ. You can only become like him if you follow him intentionally, in a committed way, his overall way of life. But here's the good news. Unlike becoming like Tiger Woods, becoming like Jesus is not out of reach. Is not out of reach, even though Jesus is a much loftier target. A much loftier target, and yet it is not out of reach. And here's why. It goes back to the grace of God. As you follow Jesus' overall way of life, the grace of God will be at work in you. It'll be powerfully working and changing you. Again, Paul said, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So here's the point. Yes, the Christian life rests on the grace of God. We love the grace of God. We are evangelical Christians. We talk about the grace of God. We sing about the grace of God. It is all God all the time, and yet... It's all you. It's all me. It will require everything out of you, all of your effort, all of your commitment, all of your determination. I hope that's clear enough. But the grace of God is the very reason you will give so much effort, so much dedication. God's grace is both the motivation and the goal. Again, Paul said it. I worked harder than all of you, but it's because of the grace of God I am what I am. And so that's the very reason you work so hard. And it's the very thing you're going after. So disciples strive to practice the spiritual disciplines because the grace of God motivates them to do it. See, it's not like, oh yeah, I have grace. I kick back now and I'll see you in heaven, Jesus. That is a wrong understanding of the grace of God. Paul says you don't even know grace. If you truly understood grace, that would motivate you, wouldn't it? I mean, if if you knew in your life that your mom worked three jobs, slave night and day, so that you could have enough money to go to school. Are you going to be like, oh, thanks, mom, and then just skip every class and waste all that time in school? No, you're going to work harder than anyone else. Why? Because of the grace of your mom. It's the same with the grace of God. It'll motivate you, but that's not all. Disciples also strive to practice the spiritual disciplines. Why? In order to come under his grace, like I said, in order to come in the path of his grace and be struck by it again and again and again and receive more of his grace. So going back to Paul, Paul was widely considered, or is widely considered, the apostle of grace. No one talked about God's grace more than Paul, right? He's the apostle of grace. But listen to what he said. He said, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, what? Practice these things. Practice, right? Like golf, practice, practice. And the grace of peace will be with you, Philippians 4.9. 
He also said, do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. Back in ancient times, a wreath was the equivalent of a trophy. They do it to receive a perishable trophy, but we do it for an imperishable trophy. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Do you see Paul, the apostle of grace? He talked about grace more than anyone. Plumbed the depths of grace, helped us to understand grace, and yet what is he saying? But I run. I beat my body. I'm a boxer. I'm a racer. I'm an athlete. I'm a soldier. I'm a farmer. I commit and dedicate my life. And why is that? It's because this apostle of grace knew the importance of spiritual disciplines. They go together. It's 100% all of God. It's 100% all of you. It's like you playing in a tournament with LeBron. You better give 100% of your effort, but it's going to be him winning the game, right? But you're there. You're running up and down. You're giving your all. And so now, when we turn to our passage in Mark, Jesus' disciples were slowly, ever so slowly, beginning to realize this. This truth was beginning to dawn on them. And in particular, what they came to realize was the discipline and habit of prayer and how important that discipline is for their walk with God. And so this is our first point. But every discipline, a disciple of Jesus must at some point in their lives come to grips with this spiritual discipline, the discipline of prayer. They must come to grips with that and make prayer a habit of grace in their lives. Okay, this is the first thing we see. And this point is clear in Mark's passage, but in Mark 9, Jesus and his disciples were going along. They entered a village, or the disciples did first. And they encountered a demon-possessed boy and a desperate father. And apparently the disciples met them first and they tried casting this demon out. But nothing happened. It, it wouldn't do anything. And then Jesus shortly later came and then he cast it out. So the boy was healed. And then afterwards the disciples, they came to Jesus privately and they pulled him aside and they said, hey Jesus, we have a question. Why couldn't we cast this demon out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Prayer. Now, this story is fascinating. There are so many different truths you can discover in this passage. I've heard all different kinds of sermons on this story. But for the sake of today's message, I only want to point out one obvious thing. Mark's telling of this, this event, this real encounter that happened, highlights the disciples' lack and their inadequacy. It's very clear. When you read the entire story, it really highlights their lack and inadequacy. Now, their lack was not sin because Jesus didn't rebuke them for it. But rather, he taught them. He taught them. And this is what he taught them. Being my disciple will require things out of you that you cannot do. Okay, this is the first thing that they learned. They began to learn and begin to realize this. But there are things that Jesus wants you to do as his disciple, and these are all things that you cannot do. You cannot do. You have no ability, no power in and of yourself. And this is still true today for disciples of Jesus today. And so this is what began to dawn on these disciples. And the only way these disciples can do the things Jesus required of them 
is by regularly and habitually practicing the discipline of prayer. This is what they begin to learn. I'm going to ask you to do things as my disciple. That's a part of the deal. You're going to have to do a lot of things. And, by the way, you can't do any of them. You can't do these things that I'm asking you, and this is why you need to begin to practice regularly and habitually the discipline of prayer. This must become a habit of grace in your life. And Jesus' disciples, they must have gotten the point. Because in Luke's gospel, he, tell, he tells the same encounter, the same thing happened. Luke conveys it. And just a chapter and a half later, not even two chapters, just a chapter and a half later, this happened. But Jesus saw, or the disciples saw Jesus praying. And then afterwards, they came and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. He teach us how to pray. So do you see that? Just a chapter and a half before, they had this encounter. They were required to do something. They couldn't do it. Jesus said, you can only do that through prayer. And then a little bit later, they come to Jesus and they go, Lord, teach us how to pray. So I believe they recognize their lack. Okay, they realize, oh my goodness, we can't do these things that Jesus requires. And the only answer for our lack is prayer. Okay, prayer as a habit of grace. So this is what I want to look at today. But if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, this has to be in your life. This habit must be established. You must come to grips with this habit, this discipline of prayer. So how can prayer become a habit of grace in our lives? Well, as usual, Jesus offers the answer. So first, we need to understand the priority of prayer. Jesus showed us the priority of prayer. If you look at Luke 11.1, 1, so now we're going to look at Luke. But now it says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished... So it says here that Jesus went to a certain place and then he prayed, very simple. Now these words alone don't tell us very much, but it's a snapshot of a bigger picture, right? Okay, this is a pattern. It's a snapshot of something bigger. But here's the bigger picture. Jesus was a man of prayer. Jesus was a man of prayer. So for Jesus, prayer was a habit, a discipline, a way of life. He prayed often, he prayed daily, he prayed in secret. It says in Mark, going back to Mark, Mark 135, Jesus rose very early in the morning while it was still dark, went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. When's the last time you did that? Long before anybody woke up in your house, before the alarm even went off, you woke up and you just found a quiet place and started to pray. Well, this was Jesus. He did it regularly. In Luke 6.12, it says Jesus prayed all night before choosing his disciples, before making one of the biggest decisions in his life. And how many people do that? How many people pray all night before making a big decision in their life? Maybe no one. Maybe nobody's as needy as Jesus. But this was Jesus' regular habit. He would wake up early in the morning, find a quiet spot and pray. He would stay up all night and pray before a big decision the next day. I like what the great evangelist R.A. Torrey said, but he pointed out that Jesus prayed early in the morning as well as all night he prayed between the great events of his life and also when life was unusually busy. So in other words, no matter what was happening, Jesus practiced the habit of prayer. It's a very simple point, but I just want us to see this. Jesus was a man of prayer and all of his followers ever since had the same priority of prayer. If you're gonna become a disciple of Jesus, kind of like following Tiger Woods and trying to adopt his swing, if you wanna adopt Jesus' swing, here's a big swing. 
He was a man of prayer. You're gonna become a person of prayer. So every follower of Jesus Christ's sins has become a person of prayer, and you hear this priority of prayer in their lives. These over-the-top statements about prayer. You know, I don't often hear over-the-top statements about other things, because I like reading biographies, I like reading Christian uh, books on different Christian leaders, but I don't hear over-the-top statements about spiritual gifts or discipleship or even the Bible, but I often encounter over-the-top statements on prayer. Why is that? I I asked myself that one time. It's like, why do people have such over-the-top statements on prayer? Well, listen to a few. No no man or woman is greater than their prayer life. I mean, that alone. What? (laughs) No man or woman is greater than their prayer life. No church is greater than his prayer life. So who are we as a church? How many of us pray? And I'll be honest, I don't see many people coming to our weekly prayer meetings. So it makes me wonder, who are we as a church? No man or woman is greater than their prayer life. No church is greater than this prayer life. Ravenhill. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Martin Luther, that's crazy too. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. If you're not breathing, you're dead. So Luther is saying, if you're not praying, you're dead spiritually. You're dead. The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. In other words, when he sees all that activity with no prayer, he's not scared. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Chadwick is one of these leaders in the great revivals in the past. That's over the top. One more or maybe two more. You know the value of prayer. It is precious beyond all price. Never, never neglect it. Precious beyond all price? Really? Prayer is the first thing, the second thing, the third thing necessary. Pray then, my dear brother and sister. Pray, pray, pray. I I could go on and on. I mean, these over-the-top statements just flow out. And again, why is that? Why are they so over the top? And by the way, the background of all these people that I just quoted and many more, they're all over the map, right? All over. Some were Baptists, Methodists, others were conservatives, others were charismatic. It doesn't matter what background you are. If you are a true Christian, then you have this emphasis on prayer. But why? Why don't people say the same things about anything else? Well, I think here's the reason why. It's because everything else in the Christian life can be done without God. You can be sitting here and have no connection to God whatsoever. You can listen to sermons, go to Bible studies, you can even read your Bible, you can serve even, and have absolutely zero connection to God. Right? You can serve without God. You can share your faith without God. You can minister to people without God. You can sit in church without God. You can even study the Bible and have zero connection to God. In other words, you can fake it. But here's something you can never fake, secret prayer. You can never go into your closet, close the door, and have this heart to pray to God and fake that. Why would you fake that? You can't fake that. The moment you go into your closet, close the door, and you begin to pray to God, you are connected to God. It is genuine, 100%. I'm only here for one reason. You, God. And this is why that is more than anything, according to a lot of these people, the evidence of a true Christian. Like a baby who is born out of the womb, the first thing they do is, ah, they cry. The first thing a Christian does when they're saved is, Abba, Father, God, they cry out. And if you never cried out, then you're not born yet. You're not a Christian. You're not saved. 
See, a true Christian never fakes secret prayer. You can't fake that. You can fake everything else. You can't fake that. So you can't pray in secret, even if it's weak, trembling, imperfect prayer without God. The very definition of prayer is connection with God. Right? And because secret prayer connects you to God, you need all of these over-the-top statements to describe what God will begin to do in your life if you will just pray. See, this is why all those statements on prayer and nothing else, but all these statements on prayer are so over-the-top. Why? Because you are directly connected to God, and the moment you're connected to God, you can't describe, you can't put into words what God will begin to do when you start praying. So this was the secret of Jesus' life. Have you ever asked yourself, why did Jesus accomplish so much? Who is like Jesus? He only ministered for three years? He had a three-year career and then retired. <laughs> that's, not a bad, that's not bad, right? I want to work for three years and retire. He worked for only three years, admittedly, in a tremendous way beyond anything else. But three years, and then he ascended to heaven, and then he changed the world for 2,000 years. How did he accomplish so much? Well, I'll tell you this. It's not because he's just God. I think a lot of people just kind of find that loophole. It's like a loophole. He's just God. Well, Philippians 2 tells us, even though Jesus is truly God, he didn't use it to his own advantage. That's what Philippians 2 says, right? But rather, everything he did, he did as one of us, as one just like us. Fully God, fully man. And so what this means is the reason why he accomplished so much while he was here is he was utterly dependent on God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And we know this because Jesus himself told us, John 5, 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord. Really? He's like, I can't do anything. I'm like one of you. I'm fully God, but I'm also fully man. And here, I'm not taking advantage of my divinity. I'm just like one of you. I can do nothing of my own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, and then I go do that. And so how did Jesus express this dependency, this utter dependency on the Father? One word, prayer. Daily, persistent, secret prayer. This is why Jesus was a man of prayer. So as a man... This was the only way Jesus carried the load of his life. Is his prayer matched his load? And unfortunately, this is not true for so many Christians today. Your prayer life does not match your load. You know, I like this story from Leonard Ravenhill. He was one of those old fiery preachers from Great Britain. But he said one time he was driving along and he saw this small truck pulling this enormous tractor so it was kind of backwards, but this tiny truck was pulling this huge tractor, and it was a very mild hill, but, it, it, but it, could, it could barely pull it, right? It could barely go up this very gentle slope, and it was huffing and puffing, and he said it looked like there was a little Volkswagen engine inside that truck. The engine was too small for the load, and then he said, isn't this how the prayer life is for so many Christians today? This is exactly how so many Christians are today. But their prayer lives are too small to carry the load of their life. It's too small. And so we struggle under the weight. We drop the weight altogether. This is why we don't fight for purity. This is why we don't serve with joy. We don't invest in community. We don't disciple other people. We don't witness at work. We don't read our Bibles, let alone obey them. This is why we don't do any of these things. It's because we can't. 
the load is too heavy. And our engine, our little Volkswagen prayers are too small to pull the load. And so Jesus knew better. This is why he prioritized prayer, because he needed prayer. You think he did it just because it was a duty, a religious duty? No. Every day he woke up fully God, but not taking advantage of it. Knowing he was fully man, he said, I need prayer. I need prayer. Yes, he also enjoyed it. It was deep fellowship for him, but he needed it. And the way Jesus prioritized prayer is, this is another simple point, he had a time and place. He had a time and place. So you will never prioritize prayer unless you have a time and place for prayer. So it might be your car on your commute to work. I think that's okay in the beginning. I mean, you can start there. I, I, I say grow beyond that. I mean, if you're only praying in your car to work, then that's a good start. But you need to grow beyond that. But start there. But eventually, you need to dedicate a time and a place, an undistracted time and place to pray. So for example, it could be the first thing you do when you, when you get to work at your desk. I used to do that when I used to work at the office um, at my church in LA in college, but I used to, or seminary, I used to go there and the first thing I, I would do is just pray, right? I would just get into the office and pray. So you could do that. It might be, you know, after work, walking through a park while listening to praise music. A lot of people do that. They begin to pray after work. It might be at your closet at night. But whatever it is, find a time and place to pray. And so even Jesus had this. But the night before he was crucified, it says he went where? To the Garden of Gethsemane. And do you know why he went there? It's because that's where he always went. That's where he often went. And so in his time of greatest need, he would go, he went to his time and place of prayer. It was the garden. And so you see this priority of prayer in Jesus' life. But here's another thing. You see the challenge of prayer. The challenge of prayer. You don't see it in his life, but you see it in his teachings. Now, it must have been a pretty awesome thing to see Jesus pray. So one day the disciples were just kind of hanging around and then they saw Jesus praying a little distance away. And then they watched him all the way until he finished. And so it must have been something striking, right? They're like, wow, he's praying. And they kind of watched him. And then after he finished, they went up to him. And then they asked him, teach us how to pray. And so there was something about his prayer life. He didn't pray like others. He didn't talk to God the Father like others. He didn't trust God the Father like others. And so they must have been thinking, wow, there's something about his prayer life that we need. We don't have this. And so they went up to him and they asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And you only ask somebody to teach you something if you see them as good at it, right? If you see them as better at it than you are. And so they clearly saw Jesus as someone who prayed better, more than anything else that they've seen and anyone else. And so they came to Jesus. And their request stands out even more because they never asked Jesus to teach them anything else. And so if you were to read through all the Gospels, you will never see them coming and ask, Jesus, teach us how to cast out uh, demons or how to perform miracles or how to you know, heal the sick. They never asked Jesus to teach them anything else. And so there was something clearly special here. They wanted Jesus to teach them how to pray. And I think here's the reason why, is they also recognized something about themselves. So yes, they saw something in Jesus. He prayed like nobody else, but they also saw something in themselves. And this is what they saw. They had a desire to pray, 
but they found it hard to pray. Okay, how many guys have the same experience? But they desired to pray. They knew earlier on in that story. They were trying to cast out that demon. It wouldn't work. Jesus said, you have to pray. So they had a desire, but they found it very difficult. They had this lack. They had this tension in their lives. And so prayer was a very strange thing to them. And so in one sense, prayer is the most natural thing a person can do. It's like breathing. Again, kind of like a baby. The moment they're born, the moment somebody's born again, Father, God. And so it's the most natural thing you can do. Everybody here can begin praying without much effort. We're creative for it. And yet, the moment you try to pray, what happens? It's like driving into a thick fog. What? 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 What am I praying about again? What? Who am I talking to? Right? I'm just kind of talking to myself. And so it's like driving into a thick fog. We don't know where to go. How do I know if this is the right way? Am I praying the right way? You don't know what to trust. Can I really pray this? Is this something God's going to answer? So prayer is like that. It's the most natural thing in the world, and yet it's like driving into a thick fog. And so it's hard to know, okay, what do I pray for? Am I praying for the right things? Am I praying the right way? It's hard to trust. Does prayer really make a difference? Okay, why why am I doing this? I mean, is this time well spent for the first 15 minutes in in my day? Does God really hear my prayers? Will he answer them? And if you're honest, if we're all honest, over time we start forming this little cynical spirit over prayer. Okay, we all have this cynicism when it comes to prayer. Why? It's because it's like driving into a thick fog. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Does this matter? Okay, can I trust this will do anything? And then add to that all the distractions in your life. And then prayer is really a fog, right? I mean, there are all these other things filling your mind. You know, not long ago I read that the average user of a smartphone touches their phone over 2,600 times a day. That's you. That's me. That's insane. I thought it was in the hundreds. This is 2,600 times a day, an average user. A heavy user touches their phone 5,400 times a day. And that's not just touches. Those are seconds, minutes, hours of your time. Right? Because you don't just touch it and then put it away. You touch it and then look. And so all these things are distracting us, filling our minds. So there is an enormous fog when you begin to pray. You know, Paul Miller is the director of See Jesus. We actually had one of his um, staff members come and do a seminar for us. It was amazing. Uh, we, might, we might do it again. But Paul Miller said, our natural desire to pray comes from creation and our inability to pray comes from the fall. I like that. So we are created to pray. It's the most natural thing in the world. But we can't pray. Why? Because we're all sinners. We're fallen. So what does this mean? If you're a believer, then you're like the disciples. You might have a desire to pray, but you're going to find it difficult. It's going to be very hard. So then, so then what's the answer? You need to come like they did and say, Lord, teach me how to pray. Teach me how to pray. And if you say that, Jesus will. So in Luke eleven two through 4, Jesus began to teach the disciples what to pray. So he said, when you pray, pray like this. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive others who are indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. So Jesus, just point by point, began to teach them, this is what you should pray for. I'm just going to tell you, pray for these things. So you can study that later. But point by point, these are the things you should pray for. And then in verses 5 through 13, Jesus gave them three different teachings 
After the Lord's Prayer, he went into teaching us, encouraging them to pray. So after telling them what to pray for, now he's motivating them. This is why you should pray. And the best way to overcome the challenge of prayer is to look at Jesus' model. What does he say in those passages, in those parables and stories after the Lord's Prayer? He's just encouraging them to start praying. Because God hears and he will answer. Just start praying. So whatever is in your heart, the cry of your heart, turn it towards God. Okay, that's prayer. Going back to Paul Miller, I like what he said in his book, but it's kind of like sometimes we get on our knees to pray, right? And then the moment you start, something pops up in your mind. Oh yeah, that exam. Or that bill that I have to pay. Oh, that person that I like. Right? All these things pop into your mind. And I like what Miller says, but he says, rather than pushing it down like a beach ball, you know, in a pool, you're like pushing, no, 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 right? I got to pray. He said, don't push it down. Just pray that. Pray the beach ball. And so this is what Jesus is saying. He's like, just, just pray. Just start praying. And whatever pops into your mind, whatever is in your heart, just begin to pray that. Pray the cry of your heart. You know, I've mentioned Ian Bounds before. He was a pastor in the Civil War era. During the last 17 years of his life, he woke up every day before dawn and prayed for hours, and he was an old man when he was doing this. But Bounds, he said, prayer is not learned in the classroom, but in the closet. And when he said closet, he just meant any, any secret place where you pray. But you don't learn it in a classroom, you learn it by doing. You just start doing it. And why is the closet the only way to learn the how to pray is because in the closet you come face to face with two things with God himself right everything else you can fake it you can have no connection to God and do all these Christian things prayer you can you're going to know right away I'm not connected to God so you're going to come face to face with God or your lack of connection to God and then you also come face to face with your own heart yourself and until you come face to face with all these doubts and cynical things in your heart all the issues of your heart, all of your awareness, your lack of connection with God, until you face all of that, you're not going to learn how to pray. you got to just get on your knees and just start doing it. And then all these things begin to hit you. You can't avoid it. You must come to grips with it. This is why Bound said, prayer is not learned in the classroom, but in the closet. But here's another reason why the closet is the only way to learn prayer. That's where God's going to answer your prayer. Isn't that what Jesus said? Don't pray, don't pray like the hypocrites and the Pharisees who pray in public for a show, right? Praying all these like elaborate prayers. But he said, when you pray, go into your closet, close the door, and pray in secret. And if you do that, your Father in heaven will hear you and he will answer you. And as you begin to build up this kind of secret history with God, that's what praying in secret is. You're building up secret history with God. How many of you guys have a secret history with God? If I were to come to you today after service and ask each of you, tell me your secret history with God. Can you tell me? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you asked. Here's my secret history with God. Here are all the things I prayed for, all the things God said to me, all the things God has done in my life. Here's my secret history with God. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians, they don't have an answer. You have no secret history with God. Maybe because you don't even know God. Prayer in your closet is where you begin to build up that secret history with God. And so this is where God will begin to hear your prayers and directly answer them. And Jesus repeatedly taught that God answers prayer. 
Did you know that? When you go back and look at every single teaching on prayer by Jesus, the emphasis almost always is God will answer you. And I know a lot of people, they're uncomfortable by that. They don't even like that point. They're like, Roy, don't say that. Jesus taught a lot of things on prayer. Yeah, he did, but that, that emphasis was always there. Somewhere in his teaching on prayer, he always got around to saying, but God's going to answer you. He will answer you. What did he say? Ask, you will find, right? Seek, you will find. Ask, it will be given to you. Knock, the door will be opened. He told parables about that, right? The widow goes to the unjust judge, and the judge hates her, but because she kept coming back, the judge did what? Gave her what she wanted. A friend shows up at his neighbor's house and in the middle of the night, knocking on the door, right? Give me bread. I have a visitor. And it's like, go away. Go away, right? Like all of us, go away. But he kept knocking. And then what happened? The friend opened, take it. Take whatever you need, as much as you need. I mean, I mean, what's the point of all these stories? If you would just believe in God's word and begin to pray in secret, God will answer you. And as he answers you, what will happen? Your cynicism and doubt, that fog, Remember that fog I talked about? It begins to go away. This is how the fog goes away. See, if you're a person who only occasionally prays when you show up on Sunday or occasionally prays when something big happens in your life, maybe once every five years, then you're always in that fog. There's always a fog. Every time you poke your head into prayer, there's a fog. But if you will learn the secret prayer, right? Begin to build that secret history with God. That's when the fog begins to go away. It's only learned in the closet, brothers and sisters. And with each answer of prayer, no matter how small, you begin to learn what prayer really is. This is the learning of prayer. You know, recently I met a pastor friend of mine. It was very encouraging just meeting and talking with him. But he shares something. I actually didn't know he did this, but he said that he has a family tradition of writing down prayer on slips of paper. So his entire family, including the kids, they all write down prayer requests, like things that are real in their life, right? Not like, oh, God, bless the world, right? Not, not that kind of prayer, like specific things. God, I need this by this time. God, I'm really worried about this. Please help me with this. And so they write down these prayers on slips of paper, and they keep them somewhere in the family room. And regularly, they pull them out and pray those prayers together, maybe every night for family devotion. He didn't say how often, but they do it regularly. And then he said, When those prayers get answered, they write on the back, answered, and how it got answered. The date, I think, I think he mentioned the date. And then he said there's an answered prayer box in the same family room. And he puts the slips into the answered prayer box. And this was so encouraging. But he said, even recently, my son had a very specific prayer answered regarding his school. And the family got to put that slip into the answered prayer box. And he said, over time, that box has been filling up. I love that. I was like, dude, really? I said, that's so awesome. He said, it's been filling up. And so what do you think that would do to a person's heart for prayer? It's going to grow. You think you're going to be like, oh, do I have to pray? I don't want to pray. No, that's not the heart, right? Oh, I don't know how to pray. That fog. No, it begins to grow. The fog begins to go away. And as I heard my friend, you know, even though I've had examples of answer prayer, I've shared some of them here. Sometimes unexpectedly, very dramatically, God has answered prayer. But one thing I've regretted, especially when I heard my friend share his testimony, is I've 
never really incorporated my family into it, and so maybe I will, but I want to incorporate my family into it, and I want to begin to record them as well. I just kind of know them in my head. A few I wrote down in my journal. But this is one simple way you can begin to pray and learn how to pray, right? So more than picking up a book on prayer, I mean, yeah, do that. More than listening to sermons on prayer, that can help. Just pray. Just start doing it. And so a disciple learns to pray by praying. A disciple keeps that flame of prayer going and then helps others to pray. Luke 18.1, it says, Jesus told the disciples a parable that they should always pray and not lose heart. Why did he tell that parable? Because people lose heart while praying. Again, praying is hard. You can lose heart. And again, the closet is the only place you will regain that heart. So if you've lost your heart for prayer, and a lot of us have, that's why you don't pray. I know a lot of you don't pray. If you've lost your heart for prayer, where are you going to get that heart back? In the closet. Just start doing it. You will get that heart back. So brothers and sisters, you can learn to pray. You can. You, yes, you. You who's a Christian who has not prayed in a long time. You can learn to pray and overcome the challenges of prayer. But you have to simply go to your closet. You need a time and place. You need to just start doing it. This is a spiritual discipline, and you don't do it in your own strength. You do it by God's grace. Let everything he's done for you motivate you. Let the promises, the promises of his grace motivate you. And as you're doing it, you're coming under his grace, so it'll stir you even more, right? But let's do it. We need to just start praying. And then we're going to come to a close, but we see one more thing that Jesus taught, the first step in prayer, the first step in prayer. So after the disciples asked, Lord, teach us to pray, Jesus showed them the first step in prayer. Here's the first step, and I'll make this quick. He said, when you, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. So there's the first step in prayer. So when you say, Father, here's what's happening. You're going from being reconciled with God to now being in a relationship with God. You're going from reconciliation to relationship, and there's a big difference. They're not the same. Because every true believer is reconciled to God through faith in Christ. In other words, their sins have been forgiven. God's wrath is no longer against you. You've been reconciled. So if you're a true believer today, sitting here, you have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. But that does not mean everyone is in a true relationship with God. You know, I've known people in ministry who have had terrible conflict and their relationship with one another was broken, but by God's grace, they were reconciled, right? They restored the, uh, well, they were reconciled, they forgave each other, no more hostility. But then they went on and they never talked to each other again. I know people like that. A huge fight, huge conflict, somehow, by God's grace, they're reconciled, and then they never talk to each other again. (laughs) To this day, I know them, and they've never talked again. So they had reconciliation, but no relationship. And here's what prayer does, brothers and sisters. It brings relationship. You go from reconciliation to relationship. And the first step in any relationship is acknowledging the person by name. Right? If you had a huge conflict with somebody and you reconcile, but now you're not talking, what's the first thing you got to do if you're going to be in relationship? Go and say their name, right? Call them, show up at their house and say, hey, you say their name. So Jesus said, when you pray, begin by acknowledging your heavenly father by name, our father, our father. Go beyond reconciliation into relationship. 
But it's not just any relationship. In Matthew 6, 9, a similar passage, Jesus said, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. So earlier it just said Father, but in Matthew it says our Father. And who is our referring to? Have you thought about this? But Jesus taught them to pray our Father. Who is included in the our? Jesus himself. Right? He he didn't say pray your Father or just my. He said pray our Father. He's including himself in that. And why is this significant? That blows my mind. He's saying, when you pray to God the Father and say, our Father, our, I'm included in that, Jesus is saying. He's saying, your relationship to God the Father is the same as my relationship to God the Father. You're going to be answered in your prayers in the same way my prayers are answered by God the Father. Everything that I have in my relationship to God the Father, you have in your relationship to God the Father. And what did God the Father say about Jesus? The day he was baptized, it says, heaven opened up, and a voice came from heaven and said, this is my son, whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Jesus is including all of that. That is your relationship with God the Father. He said, pray our Father, Jesus and us. So through faith in Christ, it's the same relationship you have as Jesus with the Father. Jesus said in John 17, 23, God the Father loves us in the same way he loves him. He said that. With the same love you love me, love them. You love them. It's the same. So God the Father sees you the same way he sees Jesus. He relates to you the same way he relates to Jesus. He loves you the same way he loves Jesus. He will hear your prayers the same way he hears Jesus' prayers. And do not take that for granted. Do not leave that blank check in your desk drawer. So the first step in prayer is to acknowledge this relationship. Pray our Father. And then one more thing. Let me close with this. But he didn't just say our Father. He said what? Our Father, hallowed. Hallowed be your name, hallowed. And a person's name in scripture represents that person's being, that person's character. So when Jesus taught us, hallowed be your name, Father, he was saying, God, you're hallowed. He said, pray like that. Our Father, hallowed be your name. Our Father, you're hallowed. Does that make sense? Jesus is teaching us, pray, our Father, you're hallowed. And what is hallowed? Hallowed is just another way of saying, you're the one I worship. You're the one set apart. You're the one holy. You're the one I worship. And here's the truth, brothers and sisters. Worship is honoring something more than anything else in your life, right? And you always pray to whatever you worship. This is what Jesus is teaching So why do we start? Why is the first step of prayer our Father? Because of that relationship we share with Jesus. And then he says, hallowed be your name. Why is that the first step? Because he's saying, acknowledge that you worship the Father. And why do you have to do that at the beginning of prayer? Because you always pray to whatever you worship. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is whatever your heart is trusting in, whatever your heart is elevated most, you pray to that and you do. Everyone does that. Have you ever caught yourself saying this, but let's say you have something going on at work and you need your boss to do something, and you're kind of like trusting your boss, and and then you just say to yourself, right? Just kind of like a mutter under your breath. You're like, come on, boss. Come on, boss, give me a break. What are you doing? You're praying. Who are you praying to? Your boss. That's what you're trusting in, in that moment. Or maybe you have this exam that, that you took, this big exam, a final exam, and then afterwards you're looking up the grades, and you're like, before you found the grade, you're like, come on, A, come on, A, right? Give me an A. What are you doing? You're praying. 
Why, why are you praying that? Because that's what you're trusting in. That's what you're hoping in. I want an A. Come on, A. You're praying. Your heart prays to whatever you trust most. Maybe some of you pray to yourself. Oh, come on, self. Come on, Roy. Preach today, Roy. <laughs> some people, I mean, you're, you're going to a weird church if your pastor prays like that. But it's like, come on, Roy, right? Come on, Adrian. You can do better, right? Whatever. What are you doing? You're praying to yourself. Why? Because you somehow believe that you have the ability to do something. You're trusting in yourself. And so why is Jesus teaching us, no, don't, don't pray like that. Those are fool's prayers. Don't pray like that. When you pray, say, our Father, hallowed be your name. I worship you. I trust you. I'm praying to you. Amen? So this is the first step of prayer for a disciple this is the discipline that we must get a grip around, amen? And as we do, you're gonna to begin to see all kinds of things begin to happen in your life. Okay, God's grace is gonna hit you like a bus. Okay, let's come, let's come before the Lord. Father God, we just worship you right now, Lord, and we just give our hearts to you, Lord. Yes, hallowed be your name. I worship you. Lord, we don't wanna worship ourselves, our our jobs, our friends, our teachers, our circumstances, nothing, Lord. We want to pray to you. Hallowed be your name. We worship you. So, Lord God, help us to be true Christians who begin to practice the discipline of prayer, the habit of prayer, and not only us as individuals, but as a church. Help us to begin to practice the habit of prayer as a church. So Lord God, we thank you. We give you all the glory and all the praise. You're a good God. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, let's just come before the Lord. But God is a good God, and he's merciful. And wherever you are at, right now at this point, whether you just prayed for an hour before church started, or maybe the last time you've prayed was a year ago, but wherever you are, God will accept you. This is the grace of God. This is what will motivate you to pray. But God will accept you. He has accepted you. So let's just come before the Lord. Pray.